Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Good morning. Welcome to Orchard's Community Church. We are so glad that you're joining us. If you're joining online through the live stream, that is fantastic. Glad that's a way you're staying connected. Maybe you're watching later when the schedule's good for you. You're watching on Facebook or YouTube. That is a wonderful thing. If you are here in the room, welcome. And if you're here in the room, the challenge is for you from the video. If you're feeling comfortable coming, I wonder if we might challenge you to invite somebody to come with you. One of the things we talked about last week, if you were here, we had the four chairs up here, and it was this picture of the disciple-making process that we try to walk through all the time. Remember the chairs and lost believer, worker, disciple maker, and we're trying to figure out how we can help people move from chair to chair in that process. It's really important to us. And I don't know if you caught that or not, but I said one of the things about chair one, about the lost person, is that a lot of lost people don't just wander into the services here on Sunday. They don't make it a point to come to church. So could we take that challenge and invite them? You know lost people, friends, workers, co-workers, relatives. Could you tell them to come and just maybe experience something God is really trying to do in their lives? And they could then follow you as you follow Christ. We'd be disciple makers. Just a challenge. Do with that what you will. God bless you. Grab your Bible if you have that. Join me. I'm going to dive back into our study through the entirety of Luke's gospel. And today, we land in a really weird spot, kind of an unusual little section. We're in chapter 16, it's verses 14 to 18, and as we read this, I think it's probably going to seem just a little bit jumbled, okay? Studying the way we do chapter by chapter, verse by verse, normally context is just critically important. But here, it almost seems like Luke took a whole bunch of different situations that are going on and kind of tossed them into one spot here. Lands between these four parables we just studied and the great story Brenton's going to share next week of the rich man and Lazarus. I love that mention Brenton gave earlier about how the Apostle John closes out his gospel account. He says, if we tried to write down all the stuff Jesus did while he was walking here on this earth, the planet wouldn't have enough space to hold all the books it would take to plumb the depths of those circumstances. I think it's a little bit of what we wind up with here. Some varying degrees of what is going on in the lives as Jesus walks along talking ultimately about his authority and the way the Pharisees respond to that authority. And here's how they responded. See if this looks familiar. They constantly tried to justify themselves, which is something that we do today as fallen people. We try to justify ourselves. Some people call it lying. (laughs) We're using the church word today, right? We justify ourselves. How many of us have our correct weight written on our driver's license? Don't raise your hands, right? We justify that down a little bit. I don't know why. We want the cop to think we're skinnier when he pulls us over. I don't know what the deal on that is, right? But sometimes we justify ourselves up. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. If you're a big sports fan like I am and you ever have trading cards, I love that. On trading cards, you find people who justify themselves up. Starting quarterback for my beloved Cleveland Browns on the back of his football card this year, it says he's six foot tall, weighs 215 pounds which I think is funny because when he played in college, his college stats listed him at 6'1", 220. So he shrunk since he entered the NFL, which most folks don't do that until later in life we start shrinking, right? 
But here's the reality. I've got a boy who's almost 16 in my home. He's 5'11", three quarters, weighs 177 pounds, and I think he's every bit the same size as Baker Mayfield. <laughs> Those guys look like they're exactly the same size, right? So what I'm saying is Baker Mayfield doesn't weigh 215. I guarantee it. He's not that big. But what do the Browns do? They justify him up. They try to boost him up to make him look a little bigger and justify him playing quarterback for them. I get that, right? Sometimes in this life, we like to justify ourselves. Doesn't matter what the reason. I'm hearing a story about a pastor who's standing up on stage preaching this passionate sermon about forgiveness, how we should forgive as God forgave us. And he asked his congregation, is there anyone here, anyone in attendance who believes they've forgiven everybody they need to in this life? And one old boy in the back did raise his hand. <laughs> and the pastor was kind of surprised. He looked and saw him. And it was an older looking fella. And he said, you believe you've forgiven everybody you need to in this life? And the guy said, yeah. And the pastor said, well, come on down. I want to hear your story. And so this old man made his way down the aisle. And he gets closer. And, and the pastor sees this guy's really old. And he gets up on the stage. He says, well, excuse me, sir. How old are you? And this old fella goes, I'm 98 years old. He's like, oh, my God. And you truly feel you've forgiven everybody in this life that you need to. And the guy shakes his head. And the pastor says, you seem so confident. Tell me, how did you do it? And the guy cleared his throat. And he says, I outlived all those dirty, rotten thieves. <laughs> if we're honest, right? we like to justify ourselves. I think that's what we're going to see in these verses. And it might appear just a little bit jumbled, but this is Jesus who's just intent on exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees here because they truly believed they were going to make it into the kingdom. They were getting into heaven, but they didn't want any part of admitting their sinfulness. So here in the first verse, in verse 14, it mentions money, but then none of the other verses mention money. Last verse, verse 18, introduces the topic of divorce. It seems to come out of left field. And there's no segues here. There's no smooth transitions from point to point. So I think truly what we're seeing is a bunch of kind of a condensed version of several interactions Jesus was having with the Pharisees. And every time he was interacting with them, they were trying to question his authority and justify their own behavior, justify their own importance. So we're going to summarize these verses. This is Jesus confronting the Pharisees because they prided themselves on keeping the law. Yet they totally missed the fact that Jesus had shown up to be the fulfillment of the law. He's dealing with these people who are proud of their law keeping. They're discounting Jesus' authority as the lawmaker. They totally missed the actual intention of the law in the first place. We've preached this before. God gave us the law. Why? To show us how much we need Jesus. Because <laughs> as people, we have zero chance of keeping all those laws in a way where God would get the glory that he's worthy of. And so Jesus wrapped up the last passage in verse 13, if you remember that, with this notion of the idea that money is actually a very useful tool for people in this world. But money makes a horrible God. That was one of the big takeaways. We can't worship both God and money. Well, in these first two verses in our text today, we're going to see the Pharisees' response to that wisdom. So join me on the screens if you don't have your Bible with you, the Sky Bible, Luke 16, verse 14 to 15. We'll have this up there for you. It says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things. And what's their response? They were scoffing at Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But here's the deal. God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of the Lord. 
What's Jesus saying? Hey, your stuff can't save you. Your money can't save you. Success can't save you. Having things that the world would look at and go, oh, that's great, a big house, a nice car, lots of money, a great job. says those things are valued by people. God often strongly dislikes those things because they can become obstacles to recognizing our need for a Savior. What was the issue with the Pharisees? They didn't think they needed to be saved. They never entertained for a moment the idea that God was displeased with them. Lots of people fall into this trap today. Circumstantially, their lives may look desirable on the surface, so folks will confuse those tangible things with saying, well, I'm blessed by God. That may not be the case at all. We understand God could easily take those tangible things away. God could turn us into a modern-day Job. Do you remember Job's story? Goodness gracious, he lost all his stuff. All his wealth, all his health, all his family, except for his wife. And with her attitude, I think Job was praying, please, God, take her too. I can't say that. That's added to the Bible. I can't do that. But Job was God's guy, right? And God allowed all these trials for Job. Why? So that Job would learn the lesson that God truly wanted him to learn. And he did. We see it at the end of that long, long book. This is Job's confession in chapter 42, starting in verse 1. It says, Job answered the Lord. He said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Starts his confession. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. All through Job, he's upset with God. He says, things that are too wonderful wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. He says, I'm going to ask you, God, and you instruct me. And here's Job. Remember Job at the beginning of this book God said, he's my guy, he's blameless. Job says in verse five, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, when? After all his stuff was gone, (laughs) after he'd been through all the trials, he says, now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job truly saw God. He knew him more deeply after he lost all his stuff. I don't know if that's a lesson we like very much. Job's answer can really help us kind of see an important answer for us. Do we trust in God or do we only trust him if we have nice stuff? It's an important question because I want to be like Job. I want to be like Habakkuk, one of my favorite names in the whole Bible. Habakkuk says this to God, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit On the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flocks should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Think of yourself if you're a farmer. Is this a good position or a bad position? This does not look good, right? Yet, verse 18, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He's made my feet like hinds feet makes me to walk on my high places. Church, do we trust in God? Or do we trust in any success he might give us? Is that what we think is going to save us? These Pharisees that Jesus is addressing, they really struggled with this. And part of the reason might be because many of them were financially well off. They just assumed God was pleased with him. But those two things aren't always connected. I've known folks in this life who are phenomenally well-off. They don't want anything to do with God. I've known people who are devoted to God, and they struggle making ends meet day after day after day. 
bottom line, God is so much more concerned about our hearts than our stuff. But this is where having improper priorities can trip us up. If we hold up, if we value success in this temporary life to justify ourselves, we're only going to be justified in the eyes of the people around us. The Bible teaches us that kind of justification is not enough. We need to understand what biblical justification is, where we grasp that the God who created us is holy and perfect and just and without sin, and we are none of those things. We are unholy and unjust. We are sinners. Sinning comes naturally to us. You know why? Because we're sinners. We dabble in sins of omission, not doing things that we should do. We dabble in sins of commission, doing things that we know we're not supposed to do. Why? Because we're fallen people, because of Adam's sin. And so Scripture explains there's not a single one of us who's innocent. None of us is born righteous. Every one of us, think of the sweetest, nicest, kindest person you know. You're thinking of your grandma, you know it. We all fall short of the glory of God. So how can we be justified by God? How can fallen people be declared righteous? I'll tell you this, it's not going to happen by God just ignoring all our sin, right? If God did that, what would that make him? He'd be unjust. He'd be unholy. So that's not an option at all. But this passage teaches us justification's not going to come through our own works. It's not going to come through success in this life because even the most obedient, most loving of all the sinful people, grandma and everybody, we wouldn't be sinless. We might sin less than others, but none of us is sinless. And because of that sin, we're in a bad way. We're in danger of being separated from God forever. But praise the Lord, God sent his son to be our savior. All along, God had this plan to reconcile sinful people back to the relationship he's always wanted to have with us. He did it through Christ's voluntary, sacrificial death on the cross. That's the thing that pays the wages of sin for everybody. Allows everyone, anywhere who's ever professed faith, to be saved. We get to spend eternity in heaven with God. But it's that profession of faith. It's by God's grace. It's not our stuff. It's not our position or success on this planet that saves us. And the Pharisees really struggled with that. We have to understand that. They thought they were special, right? They thought they were highly favored. Why? Because of their obedience? Because of their nationality? What they were trying to do was just justify themselves in the eyes of others. And so Jesus kind of smacks them in the face. He tells them that kind of esteem from men, being justified by people, that's actually detestable in the sight of God. That actually works to diminish what Christ accomplished on the cross. So Jesus includes this kind of synopsis of what probably was many conversations with the Pharisees, explaining, hey, don't try to justify yourself in any way. And then he gets a little more specific. In verses 16 and 17, Luke highlights the fact that obedience to the law can't save us. And these verses are intentional because that was the Pharisaical position. They were supremely religious. These guys worked hard to obey the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. They, they had a big, long list. They didn't narrow it down to two laws like we do in the New Testament. And we know those laws, right? We're supposed to love God with everything we've got. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. How are we doing on that test, right? I can't keep two laws. What are, what are my chance of keeping 10 commandments? What are my chance of keeping all the Old Testament laws? 
But that's what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted to be known for keeping all the laws. So Jesus goes in with them. He paints this picture. Can you keep all the laws in the First Testament? The religious zealots back in the day proposed this idea. There were actually 613 commands from the law of Moses you were supposed to keep. There were 248 positive commands. Do this type of commands. Now, I read this this week, and I hadn't actually heard this before. Some people believe that number was derived from the number of bones we have and the number of major organs people have in their bodies. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not a doctor. Didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. I think there's 206 bones in the body. I didn't know we had that many major organs, right? But, but I don't know if that's true or not, but 248 is the number. 248 positive commands you're supposed to keep. And 365 negative commands. Don't do that commands. That one's easier. There's 365 days in the year, right? One for every day of the year. And I don't know if the total number is supposed to be quaint or it's supposed to be practical, but the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, did suggest there were 613 commandments to keep. And so the religious Pharisees went out and said, that's all we got to do is keep 613 commandments all the time, and we're shoe-ins for eternity. And Jesus blew that idea up. In verses 16 and 17, he says this, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, now the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. He said, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. And we can summarize this. Jesus says, since the beginning of time, of human sin, prophets have come, and these laws have been proclaimed. Jesus name drops his cousin, John the Baptist. He says, he came, he proclaimed these laws. Since John the Baptist's time, now folks are going around sharing the gospel message. It's taken center stage. But all that has been to reveal that God has a standard, holy, righteous, obedient perfection. And church, we have zero chance of keeping the law at all times. And besides that, keeping the law can't save us. Because we know in our sin condition, we can't do it perfectly. So now are we going to assume that, well, it's just impossible to enter the kingdom of God? Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Well, Jesus tells us what we normally do. We try to justify ourselves. He says that's trying to force our way into the eternal kingdom. Instead of being ushered into the kingdom the way we're supposed to by professing faith in his son, our Savior, we're going to try and storm the castle. How will we do it? I think we know. Here's how we try. Well, I kept most of the law. The law says, you know, I'm not supposed to lust. I've never physically acted on lust with someone who isn't my wife, so I'm all good, right? Law says not to murder. I've never acted on the impulses I've had when the umpire makes a bad call against my team, so I'm okay, right? I've never physically gotten out of my car and walked up and throttled that guy in the car in front of me, so I'm all good, right? Ah, sure, I've said some bad words, but that's not part, right? That didn't count. I'm good. Maybe we're more creative than that. Maybe in the areas where we don't want to keep the law or we don't want to obey the clear teaching we see, we say, well, that command, that one wasn't meant to be timeless. The rest of God's word is. Everything else is supposed to be timeless, but, but not that command that I don't agree with. No, no. On that particular command that I don't want to obey, I'm going to say that one's cultural. That one's outdated. That only applied to that particular situation, so I don't have to keep that law. I'm still justified. Really? No. Only in the eyes of people. Only if we're trying to fool ourselves. 
Church, if we want to feel good about ourselves, it's really not all that hard. All we got to do is play the comparison game. You ever play? Now, here's the deal. Make sure you're comparing the right way. Don't ever try to compare yourself to God, to his standard. You're going to look bad in that regard, right? But just compare yourself to somebody who's a worse sinner than you. It's not that hard. Oh, I'm way better off than Tim. Tim's a public drunk. I get drunk in private, right? That's much better. I am so much better off than Sally. Sally, she's got a gambling addiction. Sally loses a lot of money at the casino. I have an online shopping addiction, but that's a different thing altogether, right? We just play the comparison game. It's easy to justify ourselves among people. And that's detestable to God. Why? Because we lose focus on the most important issue, which is having a right relationship with him. So that's the bottom line here. Jesus is teaching keeping the law can't save us. In order to be saved, we have to trust in a savior. We have to admit our inability that we could do anything that would earn salvation. And man, did the Pharisees struggle with this. We've seen this many times in our study in Luke already. They made it their common practice just to argue with Jesus. Oh, Jesus, oh, did you heal that guy on the Sabbath? Uh-uh-uh. One of our 613 laws says you can't do that, right? And Jesus keeps showing them over and over and over again. It's the spirit of the law that matters. It's hearts and minds and words and actions that are turned to God. Those things are so much more important than keeping our own version of the letter of the law. We can correlate this in Scripture. We see this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. Jesus is super clear about the law, very clear in his role in fulfilling the law. Jesus teaches this. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until when? Until all is accomplished. Throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus shows up and he's trying to explain, I'm not presenting a rival system of laws to the laws that Moses said. I'm not bringing any new laws. I came to fulfill the law. And until I do that, nothing's going to be left out. It all matters, not the smallest letter or stroke. In the Greek, those are the terms iota and korea. We've translated those as jots and tittles. Have you ever heard that expression? It's an old school expression. You've got to mind your jots and your tittles. Well, what are those? The jot is the smallest little smudge you can think of making. It's like the dot on an I. It's like an apostrophe. But if an apostrophe is not there where it's supposed to be, it changes the meaning. The tittle would be like the difference between writing the capital letter P and the capital letter R. It's got that one little extra thing, but that totally changes the letter, right? The jots and the tittles are important. And so Jesus is saying none of us, no sinful fallen person is ever going to be able to keep every small part, every jot and tittle of the law. We can't do it. So what do we do? We try to justify ourselves. Jesus is saying I can keep all the little jots and tittles. I did come and keep it all perfectly. And that's why faith in him and him alone is what's going to make us justified in God's sight. That text in Matthew 5 is tough. It's the beginning of this passage known as the Beatitudes. You probably read that, the blessings. And Jesus teaches this big, long sermon of, well, you've heard it said, but I say, there's a whole bunch of topics there. He walks through this detailed explanation of the fact that committing adultery doesn't simply occur when someone cheats on their spouse. Committing adultery also happens if someone lusts after someone who is not their spouse. The iota and the korea, they're important. We don't only commit murder if we actually take 
someone's life. No, it's detestable in God's sight if we walk around thinking, man, I wish that person were dead. Man, I'd like to kill that person. The jots and the tittles matter. Keeping the whole law is important. It's not just our actions. It's also our attitudes. And that's why Luke throws in this example here. And it seems like a weird addition, but he references the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage. Because this is just one example of this big picture concept that Jesus is teaching. Keeping the law can't save us. So we get this illustration. It's kind of a tough one in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So we need to study this in context, and it'll be a lot more clear what's going on back in the day. These religious Pharisees, a lot of them were very rich people. They were very popular people. And one of the ways they became popular and rich was that they would grant people divorces who normally couldn't get a divorce. They were making money off people's marriage difficulties. And their standard was not the standard we see from God's Word. And we've got to take a little aside here because Luke includes this verse. There are some biblical grounds for divorce. They are not mandates for divorce. They are allowances for divorce. Two very clear ones in the Bible. The first one is this. If one party or another is engaged in adultery or engaged in sexual immorality, I would make the case, and I have made the case before, if someone is having an emotional affair, not a physical affair, but an emotional affair, I think that falls into this category. I've also made the case if someone is addicted to pornography, they're not having an actual physical affair outside of their marriage, but they're controlled by their lust for pornography, that falls under these grounds for divorce that we actually see in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32. Jesus teaches this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for this reason, the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now that Greek word for unchastity there, it's the word porneia, which might sound familiar. <laughs> the root of our word pornography. So if there's cheating or there's pornography addiction on either side of a marriage, that is biblical grounds for divorce. Please hear me on this. I'm not saying that means you should get a divorce. I'm not saying that's the only way out or the best way out. I've been so blessed since I struggled in this area myself. But I've been so blessed to be used by God in counseling situations where I've seen him work absolute miracles in people's lives. I reached out to a couple on Facebook this week that I haven't talked to in a while, but I counseled them years and years ago. They'd been married about five years, and they were going to get a divorce. They had biblical grounds, and God healed their marriage. They've now been married 16 years. They have seven kids. I'm not putting anything past God, okay? He's big enough to save any marriage from any circumstance, but this is one biblical ground for divorce. And there's another clear-cut grounds for divorce. If two folks are married, one of them's a believer and one of them isn't, and the unbelieving spouse chooses to leave on their own, the believing spouse can file for divorce. That's a lengthy passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've taught through that before. You can go online and, and hear that or read that on your own this week. But that's the teaching behind Luke's reference here, this idea of remarriage after divorce. And the big picture is that the victim of adultery has biblical grounds for divorce. And so if they choose to go down that path, they could remarry. Don't have to, and I think it would certainly be wise to take some time, seek some counsel, but they could remarry. And that's not supposed to be the case for the cheater there, by the way. If somebody 
cheats on their spouse and then divorces their spouse, even if it was the other person's notion, right? Because they'd been cheated on. The cheater's not supposed to be free to go out and remarry without calling that what it is. It's a sin. But additionally, if the situation with a believer and an unbeliever is the case, the unbeliever leaves. Yes, the believer may have grounds to remarry. They don't have to get remarried. They they shouldn't go out and rush into that, but they are free to marry again. God's leading them in that direction. Still, personally, as much as I like there to be allowances for divorce and remarriage, those are the only two that I see in the Bible. I'll just be honest. If I was in charge of writing the Bible, I think I would have included more. (laughs) I think I would have included abuse as grounds for divorce. I didn't write the Bible. But because of my desire to be led by God's word, I have never counseled anyone to get a divorce because I don't want to short-circuit that miracle that God might be doing in their lives where he would heal a broken marriage. I will say this. I have counseled couples who are experiencing abuse to separate physically. Told married couples, hey, I don't want you living together. I don't want you to be alone together because my fear is over their abusive situation. I've told them that strictly for their own safety. But I can't counsel people towards a divorce why? Because in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, Scripture tells me this. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. That seems pretty clear cut to me. God hates divorce, so I'm not going to tell people to get one. But hear me on this. Please hear me on this. God doesn't hate divorcees. He hates the breaking of the covenant that people make. In marriage, he's creating this covenant. He desires two separate people experience a miracle by God where they become one flesh. He doesn't want anything to tear apart that covenant. Two becoming one, that's a miracle. But as people, we take that way too lightly. A lot of times we think of marriage as a contract and not a covenant. It's supposed to be deeper than that. Have you been to a wedding recently? I'm so blessed. I get to officiate a lot of weddings. But, but many of them now are doing these kind of celebrations of unity. You ever seen the sand one? They take two different colors of sand and pour it into one container. And You know what that's a picture of? That's two becoming one. You get the blue sand and you get the brown sand and you pour it together. And the idea is even if you broke that container that had the sand in it, how are you going to separate all those little grains of sand? You're not supposed to. That's the picture. They become one thing. Old one, everybody used to do the unity candle. I love the unity candle. He had the one candle in the center and the bride and the groom. Do you guys know this guy? I I see this all the time in weddings. The bride and the groom, they bring the candle and they've got their own candles and they light that unity candle, right? What do they do with their candles afterward? Blow it out. Why are they doing that? They were two people. They came together. They made one person, one flesh. You blow out the old candle because that thing doesn't exist anymore. And so you're not supposed to go back and relight the candle. (laughs) It's two things. It's become one thing. That's the picture. God hates divorce. So yes, there are biblical grounds. And you know folks, and I know folks, that there are many, there are people in this body who've gotten a divorce over things that I wouldn't have said were biblical grounds. And I've seen God work in their lives in amazing ways. Amazing ways. But I just want to throw that in there. But God does hate divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people. Pastor John MacArthur is known for being pretty rigid in many areas of biblical interpretation. He has one of the most gracious positions on divorce that I've ever heard. He wrote a a position paper on it, and I'm on the same page with him. MacArthur says, yes, divorce is wrong. He agrees getting a divorce without biblical grounds is a sin. But he he wrote this, how is that different from any of the other litany of sins that we commit as people? 
It's a sin just like any other sin. We seem to elevate that one specific one. Here's the bottom line. With any sin, there are consequences. I get that. I'm a child of divorce. Today's 32 years that my mom passed away. I, I, don't, I think about that all the time. My folks divorced when I was five. Then they had a race. They had a contest to see who could get married and divorce the most. My dad won. He did marry one girl twice. And my mom died young. <laughs> but, but that's not a good contest to have. That caused all kinds of issues for me and for my brother, right? There are consequences. In, in divorce, the consequences fall on the kids so often. We've got to understand there's consequences. But that doesn't mean that those folks are now kicked out of the kingdom of God. We talked about this last week. Our relationship with God is not like a big game of Jesus says, right? Like it's Simon says. Jesus says do this. Jesus says do that. Jesus said don't get a divorce, and I got a divorce. Now I'm out of the game. No, that's not it. One of the most powerful stories I remember being part of, I joined this Bible study group, met back in Missouri when I lived there when I was doing Young Life. And a big group of guys that had known each other for a long time. They all went to a... Methodist church there in town, but they were big Young Life supporters, and they asked me as the Young Life area director if I'd join this Bible study, and I did, and it was a great study. I really liked these guys, and it met in this one dude's house, and it was a mansion. I mean, it was a nice house. Still probably to this day the nicest house I've ever stepped foot in, and this guy was loaded. He was the CEO of this big auto tire part supply chain in the Midwest, and he graduated from Harvard. He's a smart guy, good guy. Looked just like you and me. We're jeans and boots to work, but, but brilliant guy. And he led this study and all these guys were in it. And I'd been in it for six or eight months. I don't know. And, and one day he's talking, he's leading the group and he mentions something about his divorce. And all the other guys are just nodding along. And I was like, whoa, 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 <laughs> I'm out. I knew his wife. I knew his kids. I, I knew his ministry that he did. And I was like, you're not getting a divorce, are you? And he's like, no, he goes, I, I've already had a divorce pointed to his wife. He goes, this is my second wife. <laughs> got married when he was in school at Harvard. When they graduated, they got divorced. I said, did you have biblical grounds? He said, no. We were both believers. Nobody cheated on anybody. He goes, I just at the time felt like I fell out of love. So I got a divorce. Was God done with that guy? He's married to his wife. They had three biological children. They'd adopted two kids. They had these five kids who were neat kids, godly kids. He's using this money that God allowed him to make through his intelligence, through his, his value at his job, to support a ton of ministry, including Young Life. This guy was leading this Bible study I was in, and he was leading it well, right? Was God done with him? No. Did he have consequences from his choices? Yes. But divorce is not a sin that disqualifies us from being used by God. The problem I have with it is so many people are just too cavalier about it. We think it's just breaking a contract instead of a covenant. We get into a marriage that we shouldn't have ever got into in the first place. We get into a marriage thinking, I'm going to get that guy to change. I'm going to get that girl to change. <laughs> There's your problem. <laughs> you got married trying to change somebody. God hates divorce because it breaks that covenant. We think, well, I went down to the courthouse and I signed something and the pastor signed it. It's just a contract, right? I'll break it. People break contracts all the time. I hate that's the world we live in. Is that true? <laughs> Not without consequences. There will be consequences. I've seen God. I know he does heal marriages. Rant over. That's all free of charge. Let's jump back into the context here, back into the study. These religious 
leaders, these Pharisees, they were getting rich because people would come to them and say, well, I just fell out of love, right? I have, what's the term now? Irreconcilable differences. I'm not happy anymore. My spouse isn't fun. They don't complete me, as Jerry Maguire would say. And so the Pharisees, these religious leaders, would grant these people a divorce. You ready for this? For a fee. (laughs) Oh, sure, just pay us money and we'll take some verses out of context and we'll say, well, God would want you to be happy, so you should get a divorce. You can get remarried. And there was a group of Pharisees who were doing this and still felt justified that they were keeping the law. They were twisting scripture that badly. I read this week, and I understand that God does allow divorce. He understands the hardness of our heart. But but the Pharisees were throwing out all the jots and tittles here. And there were two main Pharisaical schools that you could choose from at the time. There's the school of Rabbi Shammai, and that was really close to God's standard. In Rabbi Shammai's school, you had to have biblical grounds for divorce. But there was a popular rabbinical school at the time of Rabbi Hillel, and with Rabbi Hillel, any reason at all would get you a divorce. If, if the woman burned dinner, a man could get a divorce, right? So these Pharisees would follow Rabbi Hillel, and they made a lot of money. Oh, your wife didn't root for the Seahawks? Yes, you can get a divorce, right? It's just goofy things like that. Just by following this weird position. Ultimately, Jesus is not intending to break down the entirety of biblical teaching on divorce in Luke 16. It's just this one example of an area where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. Why? Because they're trying to work around obeying the whole law by just having some loopholes. And they follow the loopholes and they can still claim they're obeying the law. They're just trying to justify themselves. That's the big takeaway from our passage today. Lots of people want to do that. We want to justify ourselves. We want to claim we're righteous. We want to claim we're keeping the law when we're really just keeping most of the law. And it's just the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, not the actual intent that Jesus came to model for us. And some of us today are trying to point to favor in our life or success in our life as though somehow our circumstances would demonstrate that we're saved instead of the thing that we actually use as the standard, our faith. If we're trying to say we're saved because we're blessed by God, we're like the Pharisees. We're scoffing at Jesus when Jesus can actually see our hearts. He knows we're trying to justify ourselves, and it won't work. That's why he says it'd be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for God to change that standard of salvation. So the standard for being saved is never going to be obedience to the law. It's never going to be the amount of success we have, the amount of stuff we accumulate. It will always, always, always be what? Faith in Jesus Christ. That's the standard. Amen? God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for this example. Thanks for the opportunity we have to walk through that together, to study your word and understand and ask that question. Do we put ourselves in that spot? Maybe the same spot as these religious Pharisees. Are we trying to point to anything else for our salvation, anything other than your standard, which is admitting we can't save ourselves, admitting we are unholy, unjust, but you sent your son. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. And he died on the cross. He paid the wages for our sin and he conquered sin and death. He rose again to establish a kingdom which will have no end, which we can be part of for eternity simply by admitting we need a Savior and professing faith in Jesus. God, help us. 
Help us to live that life. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.